welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I'm Max. I am not. He is not. That is Rich. That is Rich. And this episode, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 11, unless I just hit stop record right now, and we call it a series. But against my better judgment, we're going to continue, and we'll, we'll do the cover detail, which I'll give to Rich, since um, he's well, so talkative this, yeah, he's so talkative <laughs> this episode, and uh, let you describe the cover to people before I decide if you're fired or not. Hey, folks, how's everyone doing today? <laughs> Different show every night, Trevor Beal. Anyway, cover art is by Nick Cardi again. An American soldier is down on one knee, a rifle in one hand and pointing with the other at a white cross grave marker in the ground in front of him. There's a helmet with a sergeant's rank on it resting atop the marker. More helmeted markers trail off into the distance. Behind this soldier, there's a ghostly image of another soldier, a sergeant holding a Thompson submachine gun, bathed in the light of a full moon and cloaked with tendrils of fog. The kneeling soldier exclaims with a look of amazement in his eyes, Hey, according to this, you died three weeks ago. The date of release is February of 1973, and I will just launch right into the Killjoy was here slash uh, history minute because they kind of go uh, one and the same for this, uh, for this cover. All the crosses that trail off into the distance are all haphazardly placed, leaning at odd angles no order to them. For an old civilian cemetery, it's a tried and true effort to portray an element of horror, but these are all fresh casualties in a temporary military graveyard. We've all seen photos of military cemeteries, pristine rows of markers. In 1947, as the American Battle Monuments Commission began to design and consolidate overseas military cemeteries, the government asked the families that had lost a loved one if they wanted their kin brought home. Speak now or forever hold your peace or rest in the land that they had died to liberate. About two thirds of the casualties were brought home. I visited the Normandy American Cemetery in 2019 and to know that there are over 9,000 graves there and that's only a third of them, it's horribly humbling. Obviously that that's just a stunning statistic to confront even mentally, let alone in person staring at it. But as far as the cover goes, yeah, yeah, I hear you that the cemetery should probably be more orderly, but we're drawing the cover of a horror comic book. So we want a little spookiness going on, you know, besides just the ghost standing behind the startled soldier in the foreground. So yeah, I get that. But man, if that was just some really orderly looking cemetery on the cover, it just wouldn't have the same effect. But Cardi's thinking about the image and we'll talk about what things look like on the inside when we get to that scene. But for me, again, uh, this is it's Nick Cardi firing on all cylinders, I feel. This is a damn near perfect cover. I, I love the red weird in the title against the dark blue background. And the way the soldier in the foreground is pointing and leaning almost out toward the reader, making the cover pop even more. It's, it's really, and I'll, I'll touch on this again inside the issue, but it's the coloring here that, that really helps this cover out to push it over the edge into almost perfect for me. It's the layers that make it work. The overall effect is just really, really cool. And it, it really makes it jump out at you, even though we're dealing with a dark color palette. So it's a huge hit for me. Yeah, a, a skew crosses aside, Cardi killed it. This is a fantastic cover. The fog, 
the moon, the soldier's gear. Each of his covers has been better than the last, in my opinion. This this is this is his best one. Just excellent. Yeah, agreed. So this is the Nick Cardi of legend. This is the one of which I have always heard and seen on like Teen Titans and Aquaman and stuff like that. And it's it's really cool to see him here. So you open that cover and you get to yet another framing sequence free story that starts off this issue. But that's not all that's different about this issue. And I'll just say right at the top here, this issue of Weird War Tales contains one continuous story. It is broken up into chapters, but they are all connected. This isn't a sequence of separate short stories here. So it's broken up by date and you open the cover and you get to the first chapter, which is October 30, 1918 in the German trenches. So the entire issue was written by Sheldon Meyer and the art in this first chapter is by one of my favorites, Tony de Zuniga. Synopsis of this story is as follows. A German advance column returns and reports to Colonel von Krauss that the enemy is well dug in. Despite suffering heavy casualties, von Krauss orders them back out. Battles are not won by retreating. Advance! He sees a ghostly soldier behind the soldier that is reporting to him. But that soldier sees nothing. Dismissing his direct report, von Krauss pulls his Luger and orders the ghost to identify itself. I am not a patient man. The ghost replies that ambitious men never are patient and vanishes only to reappear at von Krauss's side. He's a ghost, gasps von Krauss. Perhaps spirit is a better word, the ghost replies. The spirit of something that is important to you. Victory is the only thing important to me. I am victory. You are afraid the war will end and you will only be a colonel. You will have your chance at glory sooner than you think. You do want it, don't you? Asks the spirit. Von Krauss agrees and the ghost vanishes. A message from HQ arrives at the same time. General Von Ott has been killed and Von Krauss is in temporary command. It's his big chance. Von Krauss orders his machine gunners to be used as infantry to attack an isolated Allied trench. When Allied reinforcements arrive, they will be mowed down by German guns in the former Allied positions. Victory will be ours, Von Krauss exclaims. And that brings the first chapter to a close. So we'll, uh, I guess we have no killjoy for this one? Actually, yeah, well, we right. do actually. Um put this in the wrong spot, but uh, uh, mentioned this in episode two, Moon is the Murderer, but the Germans were long finished wearing the pickle how helmet in the field by 1918. The spike added a couple extra inches to the wearer's head and made him an easier target. This snipe applies to all the World War I stories of this issue, and as we go through episode after episode of Weird War Tales, I'm probably going to make this gripe again and again and again because it's just easy to make it an obvious bad guy by putting the spike on top of the German's helmet. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, noted, but like, as we said in the past, like, the, that pickle hob helmet, which I didn't didn't know that word till we started doing this show that spiked helmet was really popular in the 70s for some reason it was like a pop culture item like there was that hot rod car and i had a little hot wheels one that had that helmet as part of the design like so it was just part of the zeitgeist in the 70s so man it's probably going to be in every issue they can squeeze it into in this series especially through the 1970s issues which we got plenty of left so yeah man you can kick off comments and commendation yeah the uh, german aristocracy I knew Strauss was a Bond as soon as I saw the monocle. 
because of course he has one. I, I don't know why Mayer chose October 30. Wouldn't the 31st be, be more apropos? But although no one, except you know, maybe the ghost, knows it yet, the war will end on November 11th, less than two weeks away. So yes, the colonel's chances are fleeting. Yeah, he seems to know that the pressure's on. But hey, you know, October 30th, maybe they could have called this issue Cabbage Night. Doesn't have quite the same cachet, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's the night that everyone's afraid of having all their stuff vandalized, right? You know? So who knows? Maybe that was on Meyer's mind. Like, this dang kids TP'd my house again on Cabbage Night. But for me, the second to last panel on page two is really cool with Von Krause's outstretched hand and the swirling misty form of the specter floating before him. This, that image is great. Obviously, I love De Zuniga, so I think every panel in this is really cool, but that one stood out to me in its execution. It was just really spooky looking. I, I like the whole setup of the story already when I'm diving in and reading it at this point. I get the feeling that we're in for a weird war version of A Christmas Carol here, is, is what it seems to be setting up here. So that's chapter one, and I'll let you handle the next part of the story. Chapter two, October 30, 1918. The American Trenches, art by Alfredo Alcala. German artillery is blasting the U.S. trench. There are only 23 men left when the shells stop and the orders come to fix bayonets. German troops suddenly emerge out of the fog and overrun the American position. The captain is knocked out by the butt stroke of a rifle to the head, and when he revives, he realizes he's the sole survivor. The telephone blares to F Company that reinforcements are en route. But before the captain can warn them off, the wires are cut. U.S. shells hammer the old German trenches, obviously unaware the enemy is now a thousand yards closer than expected. The captain silently scouts ahead and sees the trap the Germans have set for the advancing battalion. It'll be a massacre. If only he had five good men, he could capture one of the enemy maxims and turn it on the others. But he's alone. Reaching into his pocket, he discovers a rosary Betty had given him before he left. He needs a miracle. For the first time since childhood, the captain drops to his knees and prays. So yeah, I, I know I know Killjoy, you know, for, for this. This was this was great. I mean <laughs> the first panel on the second page, the overrun trunch as the captain regains consciousness. There are three bodies in frame. The closest has his eyes open, mouth agape in death. He died hard. I mean, it's you know, I really like the effort that I call put in in this story. He, he was just phenomenal. Yeah, that panel's pretty chilling. Like, it's not just bodies in silhouette. Like, that face is in full view, and it's just frozen in wide-open death. Like, wide eyes, open death. It's like you, I'm glad you called that one out, because it made me look at it a second time in detail, and a, a, that's a haunting image. And it's just a small part of that page, but it's it just shows how great Alfredo Alcala is. And for, for my comments, we already know that, you know, De Zuniga is a favorite of mine. Alcala is a huge favorite of mine. Almost really held dear to me because a lot of my friends when I was growing up hated his art. And I could get his issues. If they had stuff with his art in it, I could give them like one Batman and get three issues with Alcala in it. So it was, it was just gold for me. So we know that, but I'll call out I particularly liked Alcala's use of these uneven, wiggly-looking panel borders throughout the story. To me, kind of added a sense of unease or chaos to the proceedings. Like, it, it just became part of how the story felt. It's a nice touch. To call out one panel, I'll go with panel three on page one, 
with the Germans leaping into the American trench to surprise them. That moment right before the clash is captured perfectly. You just feel the doom that is about to happen there. I loved it. Yeah, so that frozen moment really stood out to me. And that, that winds up chapter two. We're going on to chapter three. Now, we are moving up in years here. We're going from 1918 to October 30th, 1943. We're jumping to another war. And the art is by Alfredo Alcala once more. So I'm a happy guy. Synopsis for this one is 25 years later. The exact same spot of the World War I battle is now a POW camp for Allied flyers in World War II. Five of them make a break for it and tunnel out. But where there had been a road minutes before was now a battlefield. Cannon fire makes them drop to the ground where the captain discovers them. The airmen, led by a lieutenant, are puzzled at an American officer wearing what appears to be a British uniform but the captain orders them to follow him, stripping the dead of whatever weapons they can find along the way. The situation is crazy, but there's something about the captain the lieutenant trusts. Reaching the German-held trenches, the captain splits the six of them into three two-man teams, and they silently capture three machine guns, and the captain excitedly turns one gun on the closest German troops. Things start to get hazy for the escapees, and the trenches disappear around them. The airmen are suddenly back on the French road that wasn't there before, wondering what happened. Climbing aboard a Maquis hay wagon, they ask the Frenchman about the battle. The only battle that had happened there occurred in World War I, 25 years ago, says the driver. This is the Argonne Forest. Ghosts? Time warp? Who knows what happened? But there was a reason the lieutenant trusted the mysterious captain. His father had been killed in the Argonne the day he was born. He pulls out his wallet and opens it up to his father's photo. And it's the captain who they were just fighting alongside with. How can I not trust my own father, he says. And the chapter comes to a close. So we don't have a killjoy for that one. And I will uh, let you lead off comments and commendations. Yeah, just, you know, just butt strokes that the captain and the LT put on the two Germans manning a machine gun. Just have this devastating finality out of finality to them you know the way this was drawn those guys are never getting up <laughs> i mean you just look at the, at the way those guys are getting hit and it's just oof that's yeah they're, they're not going to be feeling that in the morning that's 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 savage yeah i mean alcala's when he draws violence and the same with dezuniga um it's realistic it's it's never exaggerated and it looks all the more brutal because of that it doesn't have like you know i'll say a name of an artist i love jim apero you know he draws great action scenes but they're comic book action scenes they're fun like there's flashing lights where people are getting hit you know and it's i love a jim apero fight scene but it does not make you wince maybe on some occasions he's he's done some brutal fight scenes but most of his stuff is just fun this is not fun to look at so i have a tiny pseudo killjoy so the lieutenant who asks about this captain who ends up being his father because they've been shifted in time he asks this captain about the helmet he's wearing isn't that a british helmet and he ends up being that man's son i mean i guess he didn't recognize his dad just yet because it was a little confusing a situation. But I'm sitting there going, at the end, he pulls out a picture he's got of his father wearing that helmet <laughs> you know, in his wallet. And yet he didn't recognize him when he ran up to him. I, you know, again, if your whole life's been normal and all of a sudden you're in this situation, I can understand cognitive dissonance. So 
<laughs> I didn't want to put that in the Killjoy was here, but it did, it did throw, it did make me slip a gear for a second. But again, the art and the panel and page design work is great. For some reason, I, again, like I said, I'm going to mention the coloring a few times in this issue. I really noticed the coloring alternating between brightly lit panels when an explosion was occurring, alternating with that same scene just being draped in darkness in the very next panel. It's it, you know not surprising. It follows the fact that an explosion happens and then that light fades away, but it was executed in a way that stood out to me. It had like a nice strobe effect and made you feel the kind of disorientation that someone on that field would feel. I'll mention how Kala did the lettering here too. And he, I think he did all of his own lettering when he could. And it's some really nice work. The fonts on the word balloons, just stuff that doesn't go appreciated that often. It's really nice to look at and he he was kind of reserved in his use of sound effects but those were all cool too so again this is just me going nuts over some pages that alfredo Alcala drew like i'm gonna do but he deserves it so uh with that we will click on to the next chapter the next chapter october 30 1944 italy back to tony d for the art duties an italian civilian pushes his cart through battle rubble he picks up a sack and brings it inside a wine cellar where he meets General Alan Krauss. The sack is full of treasure. The civilian also has an envelope of secret research papers from a lab, civilian clothes for the general to change into, and a fishing boat standing by to help him escape to South America, all in exchange for releasing the civilian's daughter. Alan Krauss admits she'd been executed that morning with the other partisans and shoots him. The ghost suddenly appears, laughing that Von Strauss hadn't changed in 26 years. The German is livid. You again! You promised me glory! I am a miserably unimportant field officer in a war that is lost. The ghost replies, I promised you no glory. Only a chance at it. You failed. Von Strauss knows Hitler is finished and has planned his escape. The ghost reminds him that he is a known war criminal and the Allies will hunt him down. The general has constructed a massive time bomb in the city. In 24 hours, the entire city will be leveled, and no trace of him or his atrocities will survive. Having changed into the civilian disguise, the general runs into the fog, and the ghost follows. We will meet again, the ghost says. No, we will not. I know who you are. You are death. You bring end to mortal men, but not to me. I have outwitted you. Waving the envelope, he continues, These papers contain a discovery from an unknown Italian chemist. He is dead, but I will live. And live. And live. Go on your way, evil spirit. We will never meet again. I will live forever. You will see. Death agrees. We shall both see. End of chapter. At the tone, turn the page to the next chapter. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we have no killjoy for that one. So I'll launch into my comments and commendations. Now, I was surprised to see Von Krauss's story. It is, it's Von Krauss, right? Mm -hmm. I think we were saying Von Strauss for a bit. So I was surprised Strauss, to see his story Strauss. continue. Yeah. Krauss I guess I assumed, yeah. I, I just, I just guess I assumed that the, it was my own father ending of the previous chapter was the payoff of the opening tale and that, Meyer just forgot about Von Krauss or we were just to assume that Von Krauss got whacked when his plan went to crap in the earlier chapter. Nevertheless, though, I was quite pleased to, to uh, get back to the despicable old Nazis part of the tale because 
I really did want to see this continue and be kind of like a weird War Tales Christmas Carol. And we seem to be digging into that, which we're going down that road, which I like. So for calling out a single panel here, I'm a sucker for a good silhouette scene. So the second to last panel of this chapter really takes it for me. I like when an artist can take a break and just do one part of the scene as a simple silhouette and just von kraus booking it past this opening that we're watching him run by is just a nice almost comical touch in in an otherwise pretty dark story so i that just stood out to me as a fun panel so that's my bit yeah i i really like uh, tony d's representation of death in this story it's a spectral wraith with a black face and two glowing yellow eyes. It's like if Mark Spector had to do it all over again, he designed his Moon Knight outfit to look like this screw conchu. You know, this this is what the fear guy. <laughs> yeah, Moon Knight could uh, you know, could look a little more threatening. <laughs> He's gonna be Marvel's Batman, you know, and put the fear into the cowardly and superstitious lots. Of course, like I, I made the comment here in the script for when I, I look back at the debut of Moon Knight, he he showed up in Werewolf by Night and he was designed to be a monster hunter like an urban monster hunter so that's why he wore all white to be a counterpoint to the darkness his his little throwing crescent moons were all silver at first because he was hunting you know supernatural creatures and they abandoned that like by his next appearance i think and he just became like sort of a vigilante with multiple personalities but i do love a good digression (laughs) so um we we get you know, we, we're gonna we're gonna take a break from von Krauss's fate here and jump into the letters page. We're gonna go to the Army Post Office to APO Weird War Tales and uh, spotlight a couple of our favorite letters, and I'll let Rich lead it off. Steve Boudet of Youngstown, Ohio, made my day when I read his missive. Dear Joe, I have just finished your newest issue of Weird War Tales, and I have one comment to make. It was a fantastic issue, except for one thing. The introductory story of the book took place in World War II, and the story Flying Blind was in the Korean War. So how could the GI have heard about a thing that never happened yet? Otherwise, the book was great. And I'm like, yes! Someone that thinks like me! There are two of us out there! Woohoo! Vindication! Yeah, Joe just goes on to say, uh, uh, well, to answer your first question, the GI had lost his sight, but he gained his second sight. Would you believe he just guessed? How about we goofed? (laughs) See, man, he was all, Joe Orlando there was almost going to do his own no prize, but then he backpedaled on it. He's he's got to (laughs) stick to the, the ridiculous answer so he can award himself a no prize. You know, as for there are two of you out there, I don't believe it for a second. I just want you to promise me that you'll let me know when you get the time machine up and running. I mean, because this is obviously you and I have, (laughs) and I have proof because I'm in this letters page too, going under a pseudonym. There's this uh, letter from a so-called Gary Kimber of Ontario, Canada that reads as follows. Dear Joe, I am not a war comics fan, but I am a fan of the weird. And this is why I buy weird war tales. Your first issues have been pretty conventional. The same war themes with a slight supernatural twist. Well, I think it's time you broadened your scope. Have beings from other worlds fight Earth or each other. Move into the future for inspiration. That would be really weird. So, see... That is exactly how I got into Weird War Tales. This is my exact origin story with this series. Now, Orlando responds, Dear Gary, 
We're going to use Gary in quotes because it's obviously me. No sooner said than done. I think you'll find the future issues of WWT more to your liking in the area of the weird. At least, you can't say we're not trying. That's all for this month. We ask that you readers send your cards, letters, and comment on the new Weird War, okay? Okay. okay. That brings the uh, letters page to an end with an appearance by both Rich and I after he finishes the time machine because I am no good with uh, uh, wiring and, you know, labor and stuff. So we jump back in to the next chapter of the story now we're uh staying in 1944 but we're gonna shift uh locations a bit here uh, so it's october 30th as always 1944 on a mountain road with art by jerry talayak and uh synopsis for this story is as follows heavy fog keeps jim finley's truck speed down to a low crawl as it creeps down a mountain road a gi suddenly emerges from the mist and flags him down the GI is looking for a ride to the front, having just gotten out of the hospital. For a brief second, Finley thinks he sees two more GIs climb aboard also, but when he looks again, they're gone. When he remarks that he thought for a minute there were three of them, the soldier confesses at once there were three of them. The three musketeers, everyone called them, but the other two had been killed. Suddenly, the GI grabs the wheel and yells for Finley to stop. Messerschmitt, hit the dirt! When Finley balks, in this fog, I don't hear anything. The GI slugs him, knocks him out of the vehicle, and hits the emergency brake before pulling him under the truck. Coming around, Finley is getting pissed off when he hears the plane's engine and bullets riddle the ground right in front of him. The GI mans the ring-mounted machine gun behind the truck's cab and smokes the strafer. How'd you know? Finley asks. I, I don't know. I, I just knew, the GI responds. Back in the truck... They get to an MP checkpoint. While Finley's papers are in order, the GI doesn't have any, but he says he belongs to the 23rd Infantry. Even though Finley tries to stand up for him, there are reports of German infiltrators in the area, and the GI is to be arrested until it gets sorted out. The GI slugs the MP and apologizes. Sorry, I'm needed in that town. Strong feeling I got. The MP fires at the GI as he runs, but can't hit him. Finley yells at the MP to stop shooting, but the MP replies, that the 23rd Infantry had been wiped out last month in an attack. The GI had to be a crowd infiltrator. For a brief second, Finley again sees the two ghostly GIs behind the MP, but then they vanish. Finley and a new MP pursue the GI into the cellar of a blasted building. They discover a GI flashlight shining on an old trunk. The trunk is ticking. Finley and the MP bail out and call for the demolition squad. The bomb they defuse is large enough to wipe the town off the map. And the GI is gone. Finley goes to the hospital to look for survivors of the 23rd to ask about the GI and is shown to the unit's chaplain. The chaplain remembers the three musketeers, Link, Schuster, and Mabowski. The first two had been blown to bits by a landmine, but Mabowski had been badly wounded. He died on the operating table three weeks ago. Did you know him well? The chaplain gestures at the cemetery next door and said, he's down there. The three ghostly GIs now appear in the cemetery, all three of them, including Mabowski. Finley salutes them. Three weeks ago, yes, I think I know him pretty well now. And that brings that chapter to a close. So we do have a, we do have a little bit of a killjoy on this one. Yeah, Mabowski said he belonged to Danny Company. 40s phonetic alphabet, D is for dog, we've been over this. And also, it's hard to believe that a bomb that powerful could fit in a trunk. But hey, it's weird war. 
I was gonna say the dude had notes for an immortality serum, and we let that slide. So just kind of cool um, that we got closure on that. I guess I'll lead into it with because I'm gonna kind of mention that in my comments and commendations. This for me was a really fun chapter. It was nice to see the matter of Von Krauss's bomb get followed up on so quickly. And Teleak is another artist I love. And for some reason, what I'll call out for one panel is the casual body language of the MP officer in panel three, page six. It just kept standing out to me. Like so many artists can draw figures in combat or action, but to render a truly natural looking person just relaxing is less commonly seen, especially executed this well. Like that body language is perfect perfect in that panel. And for some reason, I just kept coming back to it. So again, it's Talayak. I like every drawing in the story, but that one kept calling out to me. Yeah, this, this chapter was uh, the cover story. Remember what I said about cemeteries on the cover? Uh, Talayak got it right in the last two panels. Everything's all neat and lined up. The three dead GIs and the last panel Finley salutes is a great touch. Also, there's a reference to awarding Lebowski a DSC in the story. That's the Distinguished Service Cross. That's the number two Army award for valor after only the Medal of Honor. So that's that's a really really good one to get. Yeah, it makes me wish that um you know like I I grew up reading all the GI Joe comics by Larry Hama and one of his ticks was whenever he used an abbreviation like that he would have a little asterisk and a little editor's note you know usually dropped in there by him. So a writer's note that would tell you what the abbreviation meant. That's how I know that Charlie Mike means continue mission. That's how I know any military abbreviation. Well, see, no, it's, Larry Hama told me. You know, it, it, it's funny that you say that because this is one of my wife's big, big gripes is because especially if it's been like a drill weekend or I'm coming back from, from orders or a mission or something like that, I'm doing army speak, you know, just rattling off the superlatives and then everything else like that. And she just comes out right out and says, I speak English. I don't speak army. I don't know what any of that means. Speak English. <laughs> so um, she, you know, what you know, it's been over ten years. She has learned by by simple re repetition what a lot of these terms and phrases means. But I do try to say it in English. <laughs> yeah, I just I always appreciated that um that technique of Hama's that a habit of his because in this story when they talked about the DSC, I was like, eh, Rich will tell me. <laughs> you looked at oh, the script. Uh, and there it was. Yeah. Bing. <laughs> now I know. And knowing, wait, 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 I'm still on G.I. Joe. Hang on. We're going to click to the next chapter before I go off a completely Joe tangent. And we're jumping years here. I will let Rich take it away. Okay. October 30th, 1947. Nuremberg Prison, Germany. Art by Alex Nino. Uh, Krauss has been captured and is sentenced to hang. It's time for his last desperate attempt to live. He gives a captive mouse a dose of the formula the Italian chemist had created. The mouse vanishes and is supposed to reappear in two hours, alive and immortal. Um, Strauss slips a dose measured to place him in limbo for 50 years into a signet ring he wears and waits. Hours, days, months pass. The mouse doesn't return. Finally, Von Strauss's time runs out and the gallows beckons. He brings the empty cage with him to the noose, and seconds before the execution, the mouse returns. The serum works. Van Strauss presses his ring, takes the serum, and vanishes. Fast forward, December 25th, 2047. 100 years in the future, the war between the undergrounders and overgrounders has entered its 10th brutal year. An enemy ship lands at a remote outpost and informs the garrison the war is over. There's no food or water left, and no way to get any. The planet is dead because of the war. 
orders are to transport all survivors to the Venus colonies. Everyone leaves Earth. For centuries, there isn't a single sign of life. Then, a wisp of gas, and Von Strauss materializes. He's puzzled to be surrounded by a desert and a part of the world that should be busy. Death suddenly appears and fills him in. Civilization had moved away and left the Earth to him. You will never die, and the entire world is yours. Farewell. Von Strauss realizes his fate and screams into the nothingness, begging death to let him die. But no one hears, for even death has abandoned Earth. And if that is not a great place to end the story, I don't know what the hell it is that you're looking for, because that's a great place to end the story. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a great version of, like I, I kept saying, I was expecting a Christmas Carol and Weird, War, Weird, uh, and Weird War Tales form. And this is a heck of a twist on the showing Scrooge the future ending, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a little more of a downer. You do have a little bit of a, yeah, just, a killjoy it's, there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an editorial oopsie. There's no such place as Nuremberg. Uh, Nuremberg. On the other hand, that's where the uh, trials were held after the war for the Nazi war criminals. But hey, if that's my only grouse, then we're doing pretty good. See, that that's proof that this takes place on DC Earth because they always make up like you know fake <laughs> countries and stuff. You know, Earth sixteen. <laughs> yeah, well, no, just even DC Earth has like has like Kondok countries that don't really exist, and they've looked at like the size of DC Comics Earth would be X amount larger than the real Earth to make room for all these fake cities and countries so that's my theory and i'm sticking to it this is taking place on dc comics earth for the first time in weird war tales so with that that's with that yeah that's it man with with that tangent out of the way we'll get your comments yeah. and commendations yeah either because it's night or maybe there's no atmosphere i really enjoy the scenes at the very end of the story of black space when von strauss rematerializes he could be on the moon for all we know. He is a lone. The stars you know, uh, sparkling in the night sky. You can see the Milky Way. Just The planet is just nothing but sand dunes and rocks. He is as alone as a person can be. <laughs> yeah, that has gotten across so clearly in that panel. That's, that's an excellent one to call out. I mean, for, for my part, I'll say, so this war with the over and undergrounders starts in 2037, right? So we've got like 16 years from the time of this recording to get fitted for some super sweet looking sci-fi uniforms. Because um, that's my first thing I would call out is uh, those uniforms, especially the green ones from whichever side those people are fighting on are just cool. I, I want those helmets. They look like the humans from space. I guess they wouldn't be humans then, but in a Godzilla movie that like come down. So I just want those uniforms. But the art, again, it's, it's Nino. The art's great. But I got to give it for my, my real commendation to the dude in the blue uniform on page two, panel four. He's like the guy who shows up to tell everybody the war is over and we don't have to fight anymore. And they're like, okay, cool. So we're going to go home. And he's like, no, we're leaving. We're going to Venus because the earth is dead. Big smile. He's like got his hand out like he's showing everyone what they've won. And he's like, nope, there's no food. Everything's gone. Uh, I don't know how you didn't notice, but we're going to Venus. And he looks happy as a clam. I love that panel. <laughs> I kept coming back to that guy. Like he must be the guy they pick to give like good news, bad news to everybody. No, you know? show them what they've won, Johnny. Yeah, like he's that guy. Like I'll start with the good news. The war's over. The bad news is we can't stay here. <laughs> 
So I, uh, I, I just, I, that whole thing, that whole story was great. This whole issue was awesome. The first time that we've done one continuous story all the way through Weird War Tales, and it was an absolute hit for me. I, I said, you know, we're talking before the recording, and I went off on a little tangent, and I figured we'd talk about it at the end here. We have Von Kraus. He is alone on the dead, barren earth, and he's immortal. And even death says in the dialogue that he will never die. So like eventually this is a planet with no plants, no life. The atmosphere is going to go away if it hasn't already. There's no food. So he's not going to die though. So imagine the people from Venus do a flyby just to fly by old earth to maybe, you know, because everything that's alive is dead, but there might be artifacts, you know, there might be objects that people just like to go look at stuff. So they're going to fly down there eventually and imagine how insane Von Krauss will be. So I think his story's not over. I think next he takes over Venus. Like they, they pick him up like, oh my God, there's a survivor. And he's just like, hey, <laughs> this is completely out of his mind. Like he's Gollum. He becomes Gollum in space. Gollum of Venus. That's just my fan theory about the end of this story. It's in tangent. I'll go along with that. Yeah, man. Like I, I, that's how I am. Like to my comic nerd brain, I start thinking about the mechanics of his immortality and what his mind must turn into. And then I'm like, you know, the people from Venus are like, well, let's just do a, a let's just fly around old earth for. Honey, for I old, can't find my keys. Yeah. For old time's sake, you know, <laughs> like just go back and check it out. And then he's there. So that's the end of the actual issue. We are going to spotlight our favorite ads. And since I rambled for a bit at the end off script, like I am want to do, I will let Rich call out his favorite ad first. Okay, then I can do that. Remember that horribly sexist, easy care manicure set from Kenner in episode two? Well, here Sally visits the Easy Bake Oven Toy Factory, where Kenner makes the greatest girls' toys since dolls. Golly, look at all the Easy Bake Ovens! Contemporary styling, timing, guide, dial, big black glass watch-it-bake window, all kinds of realistic features. Comes with just-add-water mixes. And hey, for only 75 cents, you can get an additional six-mix assortment if you send the coupon on the bottom of the page to Easy Bake, P.O. Box 14387, Cincinnati O. Moms, keep training your daughters to find a man. <laughs> yeah, just amazing. Like, First of all, I want to ask you, as this is usually your detail, if I cut out that coupon, what am I ruining on the other side? Uh, the other side? Oh, yeah, no. That would be part of the breakout of the German prison camp on October 30th, 1943. They were overpowering one of the German guards. So yeah, it's, it's, a small, it's a small coupon. You wouldn't be missing a lot, but yeah, no. <laughs> not worth it not nope. worth it but the, the irony to me is like yeah as incredibly just stereotypically sexist as this particular ad is when i came along and i was like seven or eight in the 70s they had kind of changed their approach with the easy bake oven because my brother and i each had one and the boxes when we opened them they had a boy and a girl on the cover on the box art. And I, I sort of remember when I was a kid in the seventies, this like gender stratification of toys went away for a while. You didn't have like just a, a lot of toys were depicted as for both 
brother and sister in the house or whatever. So I'm like, man, I had an easy bake. I assumed they had always marketed them to boys and girls, but nope. This one is part of that easy care, easy care manicure set march, man. <laughs> like the, like you said, the socialization of your daughters. Just, oh. The greatest God. girls toys since dolls. Yes. <laughs> that line, man. I mean, that that is a killer ad, but you know. Oof. I kind of think I can top it. Yeah, I, I do think that this one takes the cake, though. It's for something I had never heard of. It's a full-page ad, like a double-page ad, really, for The Adventures of Corgi Boy. And apparently Corgi is a company that made toy cars and stuff. I've never heard of them. I had some of them. They were they were kind of they were kind of, at least the ones that I had they were they were bigger than you know the Matchbox uh, Hot Wheels cars by by a factor of like three. I mean maybe that was Corgi also, but it was something else. But they were yeah they were they were Hot Wheels esque type cars. I had a few of them. So okay, so that's cool. I mean you know it seems like they thought they were kind of a big deal from this ad because again we got a like a two page ad here and it is done up in the form of kind of like an illustrated storybook. Like you have pictures and then little paragraphs that tell a short story. And it is kind of uh, kind of epic in scale. Like you have this picture of this incredibly cool looking hot rod that says it's a four engine dragster. And the paragraph next to it says, it was midnight. I was going about 210 miles an hour in my Corgi Adams four engine dragster hot in pursuit of my old arch enemy, Dr. Fang, in his 4GT70. Fang, who had just escaped from the Glacier Caves prison, where I had put him only three weeks ago, had committed another heinous crime. Let me go over to the other side of the ad, and the GT70 is peeling out away from this building, and there's an exploding rocket on the other side of the page with a moon buggy next to it, and the paragraph in between those two vehicles says, he sabotaged the Orbit 12 Pluto shot, just as I was about to overtake Take him, I hit an oil slick and skidded out of control, tumbling over and over, landing in a ditch. Fortunately, I was uninjured and my corgi was undamaged. It's practically indestructible. Like you said, they're much bigger than matchboxes or whatever. Maybe that's part of their gig is that we make these big, tough cars, the Proto Tonka or something. So we flip back over to the other page and there's Dr. Fang, who, let's just say, doesn't look like a very PC designed character, big green head, a green Ming or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like let's Flash just say Gordon we'll say Ming the Merciless and leave it at that. Yeah, um, <laughs> so his face, you know, oh, in pain while you know his uh, his his car is being attacked by the dragster, and the uh, story continues. But by the time I regained my composure and speed, Doctor Fang had had time to reach the hideout and change cars. This time he would be even harder to catch in his Porsche nine one seven. However, from our previous encounter with Fang along this very road, I recalled a risky but negotiable shortcut and was able to intercept Fang and immobilize him and his car with one blast from my dash-controlled freeze ray. This guy has a four-engine dragster with a freeze ray <laughs> attached to it. Like, Fang's got a Ford and a Porsche. It's, it seems like Superman picking on a bank robber. You know what I mean? But, uh, it's a corgi boy, I think, is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yes. Obviously, this is a kid playing with his toys, narrating his own story, because, man, Dr. Fang here does not stand a chance. Story continues, I returned Fang to the caves, frozen stiff. With Fang safely contained again, I can turn my attention to combating his equally vicious comrades in crime. Only it'll have to be later. 
I've got to go now because, you know, he's out of space. And there's three other heads. For dinner. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my mom's calling me for dinner. I got to split. But there's three other villainous heads to the left of the, the dragster. And you know, one has wearing a fez, portly man wearing a fez. Another looks like Vandal Savage or a caveman. Another guy's actually got a domino mask and a super villain looking haircut. So I need to know who all three of those people are. I hope there's a lot more of these Corgi ads, but I doubt it. At the end, it says, Corgi Boy says, if you're smart, you won't trust your adventures to any other cars because Corgi's authentic details and lightning fast wizard wheels are unbeatable. I mean, dude, they have wizard wheels. Yeah, there's, there's like pictures of other models that Corgi is selling. And there's one called the Wild Honey. They have the Batmobile. Number 267, four bucks, the Batmobile. So there's a Mustang. There's something called the Hot Pants Dragster. I, I love these things. I'm not even a car guy. I probably said Porsche 917 wrong. You know, I, I, I don't know anything about cars, man, but I, I kind of want these Corgis now. The Corgi Boy thing has sold me. So that's definitely, I think, for me, the champion ad in the issue. But it's a tight race between that and that, that easy bake page. <laughs> and I say tight race because I got Corgi on the brain. <laughs> so we're Corgi, do- It's Corgi, not Corduroy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Well, Corduroy. The we're, 70s. <laughs> dude, like I didn't wear some Corduroy, dude. Like, whiff, 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 yeah. whiff. I, and as a kid, I loved corduroy pants. I thought they were fancy. You know, I thought I was like styling when I had the corduroys on. This was like, we're going out to dinner. <laughs> I was a simple child and I'm a simple man. And you can tell. <laughs> and I'll prove it in our section that we like to call final thoughts. Rich, you take a lead here. Okay, yeah, I, I really like this book. You know, the best laid plans about Strauss keep getting jacked it's up. It's Von by- Krauss. Von Krauss, Von Strauss. Okay, I, I don't know why I keep going back and forth between K and ST when I was writing the writing the script here, but whatever. Okay, I really like this book. <laughs> <laughs> the best laid plans of Von Krauss keep getting jacked up by the unlikeliest of events. Time travel? Ghosts? Sure, I plan for them all the time. Uh, my, my favorite sub story was uh, German prison camp where the, where the son in World War II helps his dad in World War I. Good overall story, good art, good job. You know, like you said, for the first, you know, front to back, weird war story, quote, quote, this was, this was, this was a job well done. I, I like this one. Yeah, fantastic issue. And I would have been happy, it, it, even a little disappointed that Von Krauss's story ended. If the whole story ended right at the end of a German prison camp, I still would have enjoyed it. It was a nice twist with the guy going back to help his own father in the battle at Ar- the Argonne Forest. That's my favorite chapter too, even with all the rest of the good stuff in this issue. This was a huge favorite of mine. I do have a one thing that keeps bothering me, as Columbo would say. The ghostly GI defector who foils Von Krauss's bombing attempt, uh, the ghost of Mabowski. They aren't tied in like all the other elements here. At least if, it, if they are, I missed it. They just feel like a narrative loose end. I like that chapter a lot, you know, where the ghost shows them where the bomb is. But for some reason, the fact that it's just three ghosts unconnected to the rest of the story keeps nagging at me. That being said, as you said, uh, the first 
all one new story issue of Weird War Tales. Huge hit with me, but I don't know. Did that stand out to you at all that you know, everything else seems kind of tied together, like it follows from one chapter to another, but that uh, three ghost thing, just, I don't know how they work with the rest of the story. They just sort of show up or did that it's bother like, you at all? It, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, it's just like, because you, you, in the first story, you're trying to explain away, you know, a time tunnel, you know, so why can't, can't you explain away three ghosts that are all like, you want to do what? Oh, hell no, guys. We got to stop this crap. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I, I, You know, like the guys that escape from that prison do wander back in time. And that's not necessarily connected to Von Krauss's actions. And it, it does directly affect his plans because they and, they, and, they foil the, the trenches at, attempt, you know. The, and the, hey, who, who's to say, you know, these guys are ghosts. If death is wants to put a knife into Von Krauss... What better way to do it? So like, yeah, you three guys, you want to hang out for a little while and mess with this guy so it can get into his head a little bit more? That's something death would do. <laughs> that's totally something death would do. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, it's just it's just me that for some reason that stood out and nagged at me. But like when you compare it to the time warp, uh, that's just as random as as three ghosts showing up. So yeah, it's just it's just a bugaboo in my head for some reason. So yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, it, it, so it's not really a flaw in the issue per se. So again, this issue kicked ass. I, I loved it. And so many good artists. Sheldon Meyer, like a writer I hardly think about, just knitted this thing together so well. And he, I did get my A Christmas Carol in Weird War Tales. And then I got to do my fan theory of Von Krauss tries to take over the Venus colony story that's in my head now forever. <laughs> so that's it. Weird War Tales issue 11. We are really off and running. They're showing that they're not afraid to experiment. Orlando is making this book his own and taking chances and they're paying off. I don't miss the framing sequence. If he brings it back, that'll be cool. But this issue was kind of its own self-referencing framing sequence, nicely tied together with every chapter clicking in. So we didn't need it. We got two amazing ads in here too. Uh, I'm, I'm going on the hunt for, for more uh, Corgi Boy ads online, if I can find them. And I kind of need some of those cars. If they're You're as expensive wanna... as a Razzie racer, though, then I can, I, can, <laughs> I can live without them. That's why there's eBay. We see what's out there. Yeah, I think we'll do, well, I'll probably have a retroactive history ready next time for having looked up if I can find Corgi Boy ads or Corgi cars. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be on me to, to, to hit that at the top of the next one. So everyone, that's the end of this episode, the end of this issue, and the end of our time. So this is Max and Rich, as I'll say your name because you wouldn't. Uh, we're, uh, I was waiting for weeks to do that. <laughs> I, uh, I imagine you were. So <laughs> this is the Weird Warriors, and we are going to promise you that we will make war no more. Mm -hmm.